because we had this reputation for having the best crowd and the best parties. You know, the drag queens with the graffiti writers, the hip hop scene, the fashion scene. So it was it was a great mix. I'm Justin Jay. As a photographer, I've gotten to shoot rock stars, hip hop moguls, world class athletes, and some other truly extraordinary subjects. I'm fascinated by the backstories and life experiences that help shape these compelling people. The right photograph can reveal quite a lot about someone, but some stories can't be told with just a picture. Sometimes you need to sit down, listen, and dig a little deeper. This is The Plug. Every generation romanticizes their own version of the proverbial back in the day. But New York City is a constantly evolving ecosystem that survived and adapted to blackouts, hurricanes, terrorist attacks, recessions, gentrification, and pandemics. Our guest today has lived through them all. He's been covering and influencing New York City culture for over three decades. Before the internet, before social media influencers, and before the restaurant on your corner had their own publicist, If you wanted to stay informed about art, fashion, music, food, or clubs in New York City, you read Paper Magazine. It was the go-to guide for anything culturally relevant, downtown, and beyond. Our guest co-founded the iconic magazine in the early 1980s, and his continued artistic curiosity, knowledge, and love for New York City is undeniable. So what is the state of the city, and what can be learned from the challenges that it's faced? We'll find out as we sit down for a conversation about the early years of downtown culture and contemplate what a post-COVID New York City might look like. Today, New Yorker, writer, podcast host, and cannabis enthusiast, Mr. David Hershkowitz. We are rolling. David, good to see you, man. Thank you for sitting down. Well, thank you for inviting me. I'm really honored. I have to say, I've really been enjoying Light Culture Podcast. I think I kind of discovered it a little bit late, so I've been going and digging into some of the deep cuts and uh it's a it's a really great show it's a really eclectic mix of guests it makes it really special i've really been enjoying it a lot congrats on that thank you yeah i mean that's pretty much what you got it you know it's the eclectic you know cannabis culture is kind of the new piece into the mix of of the world that i grew up in it's always been around but now that it's become you know much more legal and accepted less stigmatized i've incorporated that into many of my conversations because I just feel like it's, it's an important new development. And, you know, as uh, throughout my experience at paper magazine, that's one of the things I've always been most interested in is when uh, underground kind of moves up into the mainstream a lot more. So having been, you know, cannabis being underground for so many years and now like moving on up and it's very interesting to see how that's happening and look, keep an eye on all of that. How did that's, I, I was wondering because your your main sponsor for the podcast is a is a weed brand out of BC and I thought that was such a interesting and smart sponsor to bring on board like because for us for instance we've been really trying and sometimes kind of difficult for us to to find a thread that connects all of our guests because it tends to be very eclectic I mean there's a mix of of people that I just find compelling and that I have contacts with whether it's surfers or actors or artists and. I think, you know, weed culture has changed so much in the last 15 years. It, it tends to 
to touch so many different segments of society. I mean, I think if you look at weed culture in the last 15 years, you used to have the Holy Trinity, which was like, let's say, you know, hip hop, hippie and Rasta, you know, and if you go to a weed dispensary these days, you're not going to find black light posters and Marley tapestries. I mean, it looks more like, like an Apple store. Was that part of your thinking in terms of the progression of a culture? Well, yes and no. I like a lot of the old stuff. You know, I feel like, you know, respect to the people who kept this alive when it was uh, not acceptable, you know, so I don't really want to wash them out of the story, though, obviously, as you noted, that is something that's happening. But, uh, you know, they did a lot, you know, to to keep this culture alive and underground, which I love, you know, underground. Uh, As to that company, Burb, in Vancouver, they're not really my sponsor. It's really their podcast. Interesting. I uh, Originally, this whole thing came about because uh, they contacted me just about, you know, let's say if we could work together just as a consultant or some other role in the company. And I went out there and met everyone. This was before they even launched any of their dispensaries. Now they have three looking to open something in LA soon as well. So, you know, we just kicked around a bunch of different ideas of, of what I might be able to do to help them and landed on the podcast. And ever since now is about uh, two and a half years, I guess, uh, you know, been pumping these things out and they've been a great, great supporters. And, you know, it's important for their brand because they don't want to be just a, a cannabis dispensary. They want to, you know, people to realize that they care about the culture, you know, and cannabis and culture is a, is a big, big a booming subject as well. I mean, I, I definitely have respect for the lineage of how we got from where we were to where we are. And like when I was in college, I was working for a management company that, that handled Cypress Hill. And I remember, I mean, that was groundbreaking for them to be kind of in the mainstream talking about marijuana. I mean, that was so radical back then. And, you know, do you, do you think, and you talk about the whitewashing in terms of cannabis culture, do you think that was kind of like a necessary progression to be able to bring it into the mainstream? And do you think that, you know, moving forward, once I think the writing's on the wall, that it's going to be legalized nationally, do you think some of that that flavor is going to be allowed to be brought back into it? Or do you think that it's going to be turned into like the new, I don't know, cigarettes or just, and just be completely mainstreamed and corporatized? Well, I think that's that, that's a great question, and that's that's why I'm so interested in in this whole subject because we don't really know. Uh, obviously, it's become a commodity, which is not something that I support. You know, the approach of it as like a soybean or corn or just another product that's grown and packaged and sold in the stores that doesn't have you know this whole aura of history and culture around it that extends, you know, now wellness. It's, it's become like a huge part of, of that conversation as well. And now we're starting this whole creativity side of it as well. How do you utilize cannabis for creativity? How do you use it to help you bring ideas together that may not have been there? You know, they're there, but you maybe didn't actually have a chance to connect them. And sometimes, that could be helpful to smoke cannabis with a group and see where it goes. So, you know, once the stigma goes and it's no longer, you know, regarded as this evil drug, and as you could see now, the United States versus Billie Holiday, that's, that's, you know, the huge example of how 
Uh, cannabis has been used racially to stigmatize, lock people up, kill people in many cases, and you know, and it's purely racial. So, you know, it's a, it's a dark side to that story as well. And the cannabis world is at the forefront of the whole social justice movement. Uh, incarceration, you know, this whole mass incarceration, most of those people are in there for cannabis, believe it or not. So, you know, this goes really deep into our history. And, you know, I'm very happy to see it coming, you know, out into the open today. Have you spent much time up in, in Vancouver? I I was before this whole uh, COVID, you know, thing happened. Unfortunately, I was going there several times, you know, every few months or, or you know, around that. But I love it in Vancouver. I think it's it's a super great city. It, it has a, a long history of sort of the, you know, the Amsterdam of North America for even yeah. before it was legalized. They had cafes and, you know, this world where cannabis was, was much more accepted than anywhere else. And it's just a beautiful city anyway. I mean, the nature side of it is incredible. It's gorgeous. My, so my, I asked, was my, my wife is from Vancouver. And during uh-huh. COVID in March, when they first closed my son's school, we don't have any family on the East Coast. And so we went to Vancouver to stay with our family for what was supposed to be two weeks. And uh, we were there for six months. So oh, cool. we were Lucky there from you. basically March to September. And I, I love it there. It's fantastic, you know, um, but it was really interesting just the, to get back to the weed culture aspect that, you know, I found this great weed dispensary that delivered and they had an amazing website and good customer service. And just the, the notion that you could have weed and mushrooms delivered to my mother-in-law's house <laughs> legally. It's a very strange concept. I know, right? you know? I mean, it's, it's, you know, we all think we're so progressive here in the U S or especially in New York, but you know, we're really way behind in a lot of ways. Yeah. So I want to talk to me about the progression of being an editor to hosting a podcast. I mean, mm-hmm. was there a lot of crossover in terms of a skill set, editorial skill set to narrative skill set to being a podcast host? I mean, have you, have you really enjoyed it? Is there some challenges? Oh, I really enjoy it, especially since having, you know, paper was acquired about three years ago. So didn't have that job. Uh, trying to keep up and meet meeting people and having conversations that's so much of integral part of why I loved doing that and so this was a great extension of that into continuing the conversation with a lot of amazing interesting people that I've been able to get on my show including Be Real from Cypress Hill who you mentioned earlier well you know I've been doing these interviews for so many years that you know, the idea of interviewing someone was not scary. That was like the easiest part of it. The hard part was just learning the operations part, you know, getting the recordings done. Now we have video, so now I have to look good too. Yeah. Uh, you know, so there's... But I feel like the, the technical side of stuff, you can kind of make the analogy as a photographer too. Like so, many, so often people put so much emphasis on the technical side of things where ultimately like you can get a sound engineer to do your audio. You can get a great assistant to light your work, but I think your ability to be able to interact with people and interview them, that's the skill set that really makes the podcast special. You know? Yeah. And I think the big thing that you need is ability to listen. You know, I think there's two kinds of podcasts, one where the sort of the host is the star and then the others where the guest is the star Ideally, there's a combination of in between those two where they're both on equal footing to some extent, you know, but someone has to listen and someone has to talk. <laughs> and and I, I like to listen and I like to ask questions and I like to explore uh, ideas. 
So it's it's perfect uh, for me. And I've always, even before I started my podcast, was pushing for that at paper as well. We never got around to it, uh, the bandwidth. We just couldn't do too many things at the same time. So we never really moved into the podcast space, but I, I feel like we should have. Had there been any challenges? Are there any major differences between talking live and having that being the final product as opposed to, you know, you're a terrific writer, but when you write, you have the luxury of, of editing and thinking about which words you're going to write. Was that a challenge, having the immediacy of interviewing people and having that be the final product? Yeah, it's still a challenge, <laughs> especially for me, because I, I don't tend to talk in complete sentences most of the time. So if I look at my transcripts of, of what I've asked, I, I see, oh my God, what am I saying here? How do they even understand what I'm talking about? Yeah, and you have the luxury of, of taking that essence and making it into a fully formed thought, whereas in a podcast, you have basically one shot to get it out. Yeah. Yeah, and you know it's it's working. You know, I feel that people are more forgiving on podcasts. You know, when they're listening, they want to hear the real person. So if you say you know, you know a lot, that's that's part of who you are. Yeah. And you know, <laughs> I just said it again, right? <laughs> um, so you know, it seems like a lot of people, especially younger generation, who grew up when. In a th- who grew up never not knowing that the internet didn't exist. I mean, they grew up with the internet. They kind of take for granted the amount of information that they have at their fingertips to discover books and fashion and culture and art. And at the time when you first launched Paper Magazine, the gatekeepers for influencing culture were so much smaller. I mean, you had basically had word of mouth and magazines and there wasn't really much more you know and then and furthermore at least here in new york city there was a couple other options if you wanted to read a magazine to find out about music or fashion or maybe even art but you know if you wanted to find out about the cool new store in your neighborhood or what clubs to go to on what night for what party like paper magazine was pretty much it i mean am i overstating things well, not exactly. I think you're right that because that was our mission in, in some respects was to point out all the cool things that are going on around us from immediately the downtown, but into the larger world as well. Inevitably, uh, we, you know, we grew beyond our immediate surroundings, but that was what we wanted to do. And that's what we love to do. That's what I love to do. I love to discover new things, new books, new music. And, you know, that was my passion throughout all my uh, professional years or even before that, you know, just going to the records, the used record shop and going through hundreds of records at the bins to find one for 99 cents that, you know, you take home and turns out to be this amazing record that you didn't even know about uh, you know, so the process of discovery is very different. I'm not sure it's really um, as individual as as it was. You know, so it was my own process. I would go and I would have to find out about the movies by digging through the Village Voice, let's say, which was a big influence on me. Where you know you could find out about the foreign films, and I was a kid growing up in Brooklyn and really had no access directly to any of that. And I would hear about it there. And then I would go into the city and go to the Waverly or one of these theaters playing, you know, Antonioni's Red Desert and just like, oh, my God, what what a crazy movie, you know, that I wouldn't really have any access to otherwise. So it was a great fit for me. And like other people of my generation that I speak to who were in in a similar boat, 
you know, one of the reasons we even went into this business is because we realized that we can get so much free product. The music, <laughs> you know, the, 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 they would start sending us CDs. They would, you know, books would be coming in by the boatload every day. Uh, movie invitations, uh, theater invitations. So everything that I really wanted to do, I could was now possible in front of me. I could do. I could pick and choose any club, you know, any night of the week. I could get in for free. So you know, when we started, nobody had any money, and it, and that was absolutely necessary. That was a valuable currency. That was huge. So when I added up, I would go, oh shit. Well, you know, this, you know, I spent like. $10,000 this month in entertainment, but it didn't cost me anything. So I guess uh, it's a good deal not getting paid or getting paid $200 a week, you know? I hate even using this word because it's such a buzzword, but I mean, there really was a sense of authenticity with what you guys did there. I mean, I think that's what made it so special is you got a sense that, that you and, and the other editors, they really had a vested interest in what they were writing about, that they are actually, you were discovering things and you were writing about things that that meant something to you. And it wasn't just a product of this publicity machine that would eventually kind of take over a lot of mainstream media later in the decade. And I mean, like for instance, if you, if you read about Jim Jarmusch's new movie in paper magazine, it wasn't because a publicist sent over a press release It's probably because you had a beer with Jim at Max fish earlier that week. I mean, is that, is that a fair statement? Yeah, I mean, to a large extent, that's we were fans first, and even the writers that I would engage to get to contribute in, in all the various sections, they weren't necessarily professionals who came out of school to be journalists. Very few of those, really. Most of them turned out could really write or knew their subjects inside out, and you know, we work with them. We'd teach them how to write, or you know edit them and make it work for everybody. But that was really a, a part of the whole idea of the, of the publication was to have fans who really loved what they were writing about to be, you know, for example, I'm just thinking for some reason, Futura 2000. He wrote a video game review column for us. <laughs> you know, he was the guy, the only guy I knew who was really into that scene in those days. It was very early video games. So he would write, a, you know, he would get the free games, you know, that was like, you know, and, and be able to the review them. Uh, so another guy's Dennis Dermody, who's, who's our film critic for many years, called Cinemaniac. He could st still has online the Cinemaniac, if you look at it. He's a huge film buff, knows, you know, with a, a real interest in the horror genre, knows it inside out. He's a good friend of John Waters and helps him uh, with a lot of the work research that he does for his artwork often. It's just another example, this guy, Tom Murren, who was a performance artist who since passed away, rest in peace, uh, covered the performance scene as, you know, but someone who was really in it. Everyone knew him. He wasn't just like a random critic sitting in the audience trying to figure out what's going on. So yeah, that was very good direction for us. And as you said, also in those days, the mainstream media didn't even cover downtown. It changed, you know, maybe in the nineties, you know, they started, things really blew up in the city uh, financially and, and every other, you know, there was dozens of clubs every night. But prior to that, the downtown scene was ignored literally. It's so fascinating how that term, you know, quote, downtown is thrown around. I mean, you lose a sense in modern New York, not just how expensive downtown has become, but 
how populated it is. I mean, it's funny, people, you, you hear stories dating back from, you know, whether it's Fat Five Freddy or the Beastie Boys, you know, talking about the downtown scene. And the, you really, you got the sense that it was like the same 200 people. And, you know, it kind of reminds me of like in the old time movies where the criminal underworld, like everybody knew each other. They're like, let's put a word on the street and see who took those jewels, you know. But I mean, <laughs> to a degree, I feel like it really was like that. I mean, their downtown was largely ignored by, you know the rest of New York city culture. Is that, is that how you characterize it? Totally. You know, it was usual. You would, you would probably recognize most of the people you would see in the street, even if you didn't know them, they were familiar faces because they were the only ones who were really out on the streets for the most part. And I tell you, even today in this COVID era downtown, I still live in the East village. It started to look like it did back then with way fewer people and, you know, I'm very uh, interested to see where we're going to be going in the next few you know, months or year to see how things evolve on that. I watched this documentary recently about the history of Tower Records. Oh. It, it wasn't a spectacular documentary, but what was interesting is they talked about when they first opened their flagship store on Broadway, like what a radical move that was for them to open in that spot. I mean, they basically described it as you know, feral dogs running down Broadway in the early 80s, you know, like just how unpopulated that whole area was, you know, like in the early 80s. And it's fascinating to see the changes. Yeah. And it's, you know, downtown 81, the movie, uh, you know, with Basquiat and uh, Glenn O'Brien made and a lot of the people from that era are in there. It's a great depiction of the, the streets of the East Village what it was like there. And yeah, it's, it's, but it's been a while too. The, the, the amazing thing is that people still talk about it. And it's like almost four, it's 40 years now gone. So, you know, from let's say my generation or my parents, that would have been like the depression or something, you know, like, yeah. talk, you know, at, of which there's no connection with the young people of that time had no interest in anything relating to that. Whereas today there's just that eighties is still very much, current you know it's still relevant to to the world we're in today yeah um so i'm curious about you know with paper magazine did you see the writing on the wall in terms of where print media was going and the challenges that 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 you're going to meet or were you kind of caught off guard about how quickly things would turn south i mean was there something specific or particular about paper magazine that kind of insulated it from becoming irrelevant and obsolete, like maybe the village voice ended up becoming? Well, one thing is we very early embraced the internet. So we had started our website in 96, which was very, very early before any of the made any media uh, had a website. So before the New York Times, before Condé Nast, before, you know, almost anyone, uh, we started our website and got very ambitious because I saw the opportunity there to have this daily operation where we could have listings and guides and a lot of what we were doing in our monthly. But, you know, things were so popping in the city, there was enough information going on for every day. So we really committed to that way ahead of the curve, unfortunately, in a way, because there was no real support for it. But we had, you know, like Calvin Klein coming up to the office or Isaac Mizrahi or 
you know, just people who had never even seen or knew anything about the internet because we wanted to show it to them. And then we would try to get them to do chats. You know, we would have like these online chats and things with the dial-up. You know, so we embraced that and just felt that there was an opportunity. So we really wanted to be a part of it. I didn't really anticipate what it would do to the advertising business, you know, the business model of a magazine. But at the same time, we also had moved into uh, this idea of what we, we started uh, an agency. It was called Extra Extra, where we started to work with brands to do what everyone's doing today. You know, it was a very specific moment. I remember when it happens because we used to do lots of parties. We would do parties in every club, a dance interior, like every week, yeah, Palladium, uh, area, you name it. You know, we would do parties there constantly because that was how we promoted uh, the magazines. So it, it was an integral part of our business. And we would get brands or advertisers who wanted us to throw a party for them because we had this reputation for having the best crowd and the best parties because our crowds mixed, you know, the drag queens with the graffiti writers, the hip hop scene, the fashion scene. So it was it was a great mix of, of what it was. So then the brands asked, well, can we throw them a party? So we would make them take ads and say, okay, well, if you take X number of ads, we'll, we'll, we'll throw a party for you. And then it came a time when a brand said, well, we would, we want a party, but we don't want to advertise because we don't think, you know, we're, that's not what we do. We don't advertise. So then we started, okay, well, maybe we could figure out a way of actually turning this into a business where we would work with the brands, get paid. And that, that became a real substantial part of our business by the time, uh, you know, probably till today, it still probably is the, the only side of the business that's really functioning well. Yeah. I mean, that seems like such a, a, that's a real progressive mindset to be able to kind of adapt your business model like that. I mean, it's interesting if you look at say the village voice, for instance, I mean, so many, so many people place so much emphasis on the downturn in print media, especially news media on, on online news and mobile phones and, and blogs and, and the internet. But you, you know, you forget how disruptive Craigslist was or how important the classified ads were. Like, I remember, you know, if you were looking for an apartment in New York city you went on Tuesday night and got the village voice as soon as it hit the stands because that apartment was gone by Wednesday afternoon if you hadn't made those calls. So, I mean, it seems so archaic now to talk about, but I mean, the importance of those classified ads to the revenue stream of, of the village voice and how important they were to New York City, like it really can't be overstated. Huge. I mean, that was the whole crisis with all of... Uh magazine, newspaper publishing, the New York Times lost all their classified. You know, those were like cash cows that kept a lot of this business operating. And it, they finally emerged now because they have more subscribers online, you know, than they do in, uh, for the print. But at a time, it looked like they were in danger of going out of business. Uh, I think a, a lot of the magazines have recovered to some extent. They figured it out. But so many have died and, and folded along the way. Obviously, the daily newspaper world is not what it was. Even the daily news is like a shadow of it's what it was. Yeah. I'm curious of, you know, where, where did you see yourself in relation to, let's say, if you take like the Village Voice and interview magazine like what what's the dna that connects you to like is, you know, the village voice is more of like the architect of like an old school newspaper that kind of turned to culture and interview is that like a kind of an older brother and you're a kid brother? like how where do you see how do you align yourself in terms of your your place in in 
magazine history? Yeah, well, that's a, it's a good question because those two examples are perfect in some respects because the Village Voice for me was something that I grew up with and that was what I wanted, you know, to have paper have that sensibility when it came to the politics, you know, to make that a part of who we are as well. So it wasn't just like fashion and entertainment. So we always had a political dimension to our approach to the city and and what we were writing. And we didn't really uh, interview on the other hand, didn't have any politics, but it had uh, style, I guess. I mean, it didn't really even have fashion as I recall back then. Uh, that much. But my partner, Kim Hostreiter, was really a part of the fashion world. She had been a style editor at the Soho News, where we had originally met. And so that was a big part of who she was. So that combination really of her style, fashion, design, sensibility with my, um, you know, politics and literature and arts uh, sensibility made this kind of hybrid that was a fashion and style, but also content. We also we always felt that just because you were in a fashion business didn't mean you didn't care about gentrification or, you know, Rudy Giuliani or entertainment or, or gay LGBTQ issues, as they call it today. Um, it's interesting you, you, you talked about politics and, and news, because it seems like there was a time when people, especially with print media and newspapers, people used to read the news, you know, and now it's almost like it, it was regarded as relatively objective. And now it's almost like people watch their news or they read their news, you know, and it's like custom tailored to their worldview. And it, it seems to a degree that pop culture has kind of done the same thing. Like I, I was thinking my first apartment, I moved here in my late teens and I used to live on Second Street between A and B. And right around the corner was the club Save the Robots, which I'm sure you remember. Sure. And so for the listeners who don't, don't know about that, uh, it was an after-hours club that opened at 4 a.m. And it wasn't fancy by any means. It was like this <laughs> dank, dungeonous, dark hole in the ground. But I used to sit across the street and just hang out and watch people go in and out. And it was fascinating because you would see limousines with financial types and you would see like punk rock kids and junkies and hip hop kids and, and movie stars. And it was such this incredible eclectic mix of people that all came to the same place. And COVID aside, I can't think of a single place in New York City where you would find a mix of people like that willingly hanging out together anymore. Like, why do you think that is? Right, because things got very fragmented. And I guess, you know, we live in a divisive culture, but a lot of these groups just went off on their own. You know, they just they, they just don't mix in the same way as they do. Whereas you had, you mentioned Save the Robots, but then just you know, a few blocks away was the Pyramid Club. So the premier drag scene club of the time where RuPaul was a regular and Lady Bunny and, you know, kind of amazing uh, stars of, of that generation who changed the whole face of, of what it means, you know, what drag is today. But also they were very welcoming to anyone who, you know, you didn't have to be gay, you didn't have to be a drag, you didn't have to be man, you didn't have to be, you know, whatever you wanted, you could go in there they were open to it and never felt any kind of hassle about that. And the same would be true wherever you went. I used to go to these hip hop places. I'd be the only, you know, guy of of my color persuasion. <laughs> Person <laughs> persuasion. 
you know, but I always had respect. You know, people respected you for going out and being there and they didn't really make a big thing about it. But today, I don't know how that would work in the same way. Everybody is so compartmentalized in these in these groups and they, there is no real opportunity for crossover that, unfortunately. Yeah, it seems to be happening, you know, almost internally and in the sense that it's, I don't think that you or I as a white person, if we went to a predominantly black hip hop club, it's not so much that we would be unwelcomed. It's just people don't go out of their comfort zone. We wouldn't seek it out necessarily in the same way that a lot of people did, you know, back in that era. Right. Is that, you think that's a fair statement? Yeah, no, it's true. It's not that people aren't welcomed outside of their circle. It's that they don't want to. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe people find comfort. You know, I, I look at social media as being the, such a huge uh, influence and, and change maker in the way people relate and, and hang and where they spend their time. And, and even when they're out, they're not really there because everyone's on their phone, you know, me included. I'm not, you know, even just singling people out. It's just sort of that's normal at this stage. So it's just a different experience. And yeah. one of the things I, I struggle with is trying not to compare then and now too much because it's just a different time. And, you know, I have that history in my mind. And so I'm always going to be doing that. But, you know, I have children who are, you know, son is like in college, 19 and a daughter who's 22. And, and they, you know, they're living in this time and place right now. They, you know, whether I used to do it a certain way is of really no interest or relevance to them. But, you know, it's something I talk about, obviously. But, you know, they're doing it their way today. And their job is to kind of try to figure out how to make it work. It, it's so interesting you brought that up because I, I was thinking about that just the other day that, you know, New York is such a such a unique place and it's constantly evolving, but there's this propensity for people to always romanticize about the proverbial back in the day, you know, and, and I, I do my <laughs> yeah. best to not fall victim to that. Cause I don't think it really exists, you know, but I had this experience. I was probably about two years ago. Did you read the book? Meet me in the bathroom by Lizzie Goodman. Yes. Sir. Okay. Mm -hmm. So for those of you who don't know, it's, it's a really interesting book. It, it's basically talking about how, the fabric of New York City was, the culture of New York City was so shaped by this generation of bands that came up in the early 2000s, like predominantly the Strokes, but it talks a lot about the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs and DFA and Rapture and Jonathan Fire Eater. But there was a, a companion art show that went along with it that was at the whole gallery. And so I went to the opening of this show and it was packed and it was hot and it was just like a total shit show trying to get in. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to keep it old school. I'm going to go across the street and I'm going to grab a 40 and I'm just going to watch the people going in and out like I used to do when I was 18 in front of Save the Robots, you know? And so I walked up and down the Bowery trying to find a bodega and I think I had to walk to First <laughs> Avenue, you know, to find a place. To, and I was like, you can't buy a fucking beer on the Bowery anymore. Like what city are we living in? You know, and I started to get a little cynical, but then I looked around and it was a beautiful night. And, you know, all the college kids and all the people in their 20s and everyone's eating outside and walking around and, you know, and had this epiphany. I was like, this is this is their time. You know, this is what they're going to look back upon and tell their kids about, about, you know, they're back in the day or whatever. But this is pre-COVID, obviously. And I guess my question is, New York really seems injured right now. And do you think that that COVID is going to be a significant inflection point in terms of the cultural history and the cultural future of New York? Where do you see New York going from here? Because it, it's not looking really good right now. Yeah. If real estate didn't do enough damage, like COVID really was the final nail in a lot of ways. 
Right. And you can't underestimate the damage that's been done by COVID in, in so many ways, you know, mentally, just to everyone who's been locked up all this time, all the young people, apparently there's, you know, depression and all kinds of physical, mental health issues that are emerging as a result of this, the schools, certainly all the, the retails, uh, stores that are all shut up. And But at the same time, I feel like it's a cha- it's an opportunity for a reset. You know, like everything stopped and now we start. But do we start, like, do we pick up where we left off or do we try to start something new that's more of the moment because when things are a progression from moving from the past it's always sort of adjusting what you had from before as opposed to starting something new so you're never going to really get anything new as long as everybody is just trying to you know figure out the uh, how to tweak whatever they're working on, you know, so they have a business. Okay, well, we need to adjust this. We need to do this. We need to get more money. You know, there are certain ideas that keep coming up, but this is an opportunity. I was just thinking about this the other day, theater, let's say. So yeah, what's going to happen? How can they open? They don't have rehearsals. There are people, they're not going to have the same kind of ongoing, you know, way of, of producing shows. So maybe there's going to be a new way. Maybe there's some people going to start experimenting. Maybe we're going to have Zoom, you know, big TVs in, in the theaters where they can actually have people from other places, other parts of the world that are act interacting with the people there. You know, just some of the technology that's become commonplace. Maybe that could be integrated into the experience. Certainly with music, um, I, I'm sure it's going to have an influence, even though... A lot of this sort of pop hop, the hip hop, hip hop that's, you know, all over the place. Maybe that's of the past. You know, maybe there's a time where we're going to start doing more like uh, avant-garde electronica, which is, you know, what I'm into right now. So, which I, I find to be really refreshing. And it's like a whole world out there that I'm discovering that I barely knew anything about, uh, you know, beyond Philip Glass and a few people. But there's, it's it's really... Monumental. So I don't know. I'm kind of hopeful, at least, if not optimistic, that and and even with the retail, for example, I was thinking cannabis. Come on, legalize cannabis in New York. You'll have hundreds of of those empty shops full of cannabis stores. It's like the only opportunity that's really out there at the moment <laughs> yeah. to to that you could take advantage of because they'll they'll surely be coming if you open the doors. Yeah, so oh, that's good. To see you're, you're optimistic about the future in terms of... Well, hopeful at least. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, we've learned so much. We've learned about our environment. You know, a lot of, yeah, of course, there's half the country is in denial, but, you know, the other half has really had its mind open up and understanding where we are. And, you know, it's a battle to see who prevails, but at least, you know, there's something to fight for here. Yeah, well... I always like to give the guests an opportunity to to plug something <laughs> that they feel hasn't really been getting enough attention lately, whether it's a book or a movie or an artist. Um, mm. Like, is there anything you want to give a shout out to that you feel that, you know, people should know about that you want to give some shine to? Um, yeah, let's just uh, pick one because I was talking about this avant-garde music thing. This, this is a show called New Sounds. Okay. 
It's on uh, NYC. WNYC? Yeah, you could stream it. It's called New Sounds. It's It's got this amazing, eclectic variety of music. Also, uh, this whole new reggae movement that I've been listening to. Uh, there's a great show out of KEXP on, on Seattle radio stations called Positive Vibrations. A DJ Kid Hops that plays a nice mix of like sort of classic reggae and dub and ska, but with amazing new artists who are, are reinventing that form as well. And I'm also, you know, Africa, Niger, you know, countries like Nigeria. I had um, these people on my podcast, Ola Oluswan and his group doing, he's just a really cool kind of skate crew in Lagos, Nigeria that wow. I spoke with. And that just seems like, wow, this is so much energy, so much art and creation. There's a whole lot of, lot of people who are just now emerging into that space where they could start to express themselves and influence the culture. I think, you know, Paper Magazine was such a, a good byproduct of your, you know, curiosity about so many different cultures and, and, and music and, and genres. And, you know, do you see... Do you see the irony in the fact that you used to have to kind of discover these things and that's what was so special about Paper Magazine, whereas now it's almost just the opposite. It's like there's too much information. Right? The, the, the discovery is, is trying to find the signal and the noise. Exactly, 100%. Discovery is, to me, is, is so important in life that I just don't know. You know, I discover things online. I, I won't lie. You know, there's stuff that I find and there's there's a lot of great writing online and journals and access to a lot of that I dig up and, and I appreciate. But I do miss the way I used to do it. But that was, you know, analog. That was an analog experience that just doesn't, you can't even do it that way anymore, even if you wanted to. You know, you yeah. can't just go into a record store and go through because there, yeah, there are few, there are some of them out there, but not that many. But I mean, yeah, I guess, you know, there's there's the upside too, like at least in, in terms of being an artist, whether it's a musician or a visual artist or whatever, you know, if you were a photographer or a painter in the 90s, like you'd have to book a show and print cards and maybe put an ad in the Village Voice and then stand on Avenue A and hand them out to people. It was an analog experience. And now it's like you upload and you have to compete with the rest of the world, but there's the possibility that someone anywhere in the globe can can look at your work. So it's, it's an interesting time. If you can if you can cut through the noise, you know. Yeah, like what you were saying earlier about the gatekeepers. They're, you know, the gatekeepers were keeping people out. You know, they were really not opening those gates very much. So, you know, much of the, of the huge talent that exists out there, uh, you know, with our African-American people of color, genders, you know, who were not widely accepted in the in the wall in the corporate world, are now getting their due, their moment. Um, you know, the black culture is having a renaissance, in my opinion. You know, it's a, it, almost anywhere you look in the arts, you see they they are, and they're really performing at a high level. And you know, theater, film, music, art, it's, it's writing, you know, literature. Uh, so that's I think because of social media. In, in a way, I mean, you know, I, I hate it and I love it, but I think we all do. Yeah, what it is. It's, <laughs> <laughs> so it's really opened the door for a lot of people and a lot of the, you know, editors like myself and, and, and paper, which used to do that, are not really doing it in the same way anymore because those publications are really responding to social media. So they're first looking to see who's famous or popular 
on social media, then they're writing about them. You know, so it's sort of like the opposite. So they're, they're, you know, Anna Winter doesn't have any of the amount of power that she used to have in terms of setting the trends in fashion because all of that is, is being done on Instagram. So, you know. Well, it's funny you brought that up. Talk to me about how the Kim Kardashian cover came out. I mean, because correct me if I'm wrong, that was by far your, your biggest cover ever. Sure. Is that, that's a fair statement? Yeah. Were you blindsided by that? Did you know that that was going to be the case? I mean, that was kind of a coup for you guys as like, you know, I don't want to say you're like this scrappy little publication because you have like a pretty storied history. But I mean, it wasn't it wasn't like the Vogue's or the Condé Nast publication that, that got that cover. How did that come about? Right. Well, she had been doing other covers. You know, it was uh, we had some some of our editors had like a personal relationship or contact with her through the fashion world. But you guys really nailed it in terms of like. That, right, that, and it's, that cover was—I mean, nothing, nothing close to the press that any of the other covers would have gotten. Right, and why is that? You know, it's really interesting to analyze. You know, we, the concept was great. You know, it's because we recreated this famous image, Jean-Paul Good shot. So we had him shoot this for us, like replicating this famous image that had you know known to all photographers and everyone in the fashion world and and beyond. So that was. Great to begin with. And I'll, just to be honest, I was not necessarily like a big supporter of that cover to begin with, because, you know, I never was a big fan of the Kardashians. And from where I was sitting, you know, that wasn't what was most important. But at the same time, yeah, I understood she was famous. And, you know, why not put her on the cover? That's not let's do it. And so we convinced her to do this, this piece. We had this photo but I think the, the real thing was the cover line, which was said, break the internet. So believe it or not, that's what grabbed them. Just another picture of Kim Kardashian being sexy or something, you know, that you could find those. But the combination of that plus break the internet, which it just caught people's imaginations in such a way. And they started making all these memes. There's yeah. hundreds of them of, of various, you know, and then they even made a movie, right, uh, called Break the Internet. We actually wound up, I think, trademarking that term. I was just about to ask for it. So you guys do, because I saw on the, on the, on the site there's, a, yeah. there's an R signal after yeah. that. You guys actually got the trademark Yeah. So there's some protection there. Because it's so ubiquitous. It seems amazing to me that that term wasn't around longer. Yeah, no, it's it, and put it out there. I imagine someone might have used it prior, but, uh, you know, the idea was just, well, let's put that on the cover. And that's what really took hold. And uh, she was very helpful. You know, she's a nice person. You know, we had good experiences with her. We wound up doing a big event in Miami with her around Art Basel. And then, in fact, there's an episode of the Kardashians where I'm in it, where they actually go to Miami for the event. And, you know, there's like a 30, 60 seconds. And for a time, I would be recognized in my neighborhood. People would come, oh, you're the guy in the Kardashians. You're like, I've been grinding out, making this like important cultural magazine for 40 years. And that's what you know that's- me for. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. So it was it was magical in those terms. And uh, to answer the other part of your question, well, we really, you know, didn't make any money on this whole thing. We, of course, we got tons of attention and that's, you know, helpful. And that turned into money later. But prior to when we were doing the cover, we were trying to get sponsors to help, you know, pay some money because we're telling them, 
All right, we're going to have this Kardashian cover. It's really going to be amazing. We got John Paul Good, and they're going, nah, we, you know, it's big deal, Kardashians. They had no idea this was going to be just going around the world in such a massive way. Yeah, just that term, break the internet, just seems so perfect. It almost is like, it's like when you hear a great pop song for the first time, and you're like, wait, this is, I've heard this before. I mean, it just seems so natural. It's, it's amazing that you guys actually came up with that. That's <laughs> what it is, yeah. We came up with a lot of stuff, but they just, it was <laughs> probably <great>. even better, <laughs> but it didn't get the, you know, the legs of this one, or the, the ass. It didn't ride the ass <laughs> of this one. That's amazing. <laughs> Well, I'll, I'll leave you on this. I have one great story. Um, and I don't know, I know you and I have crossed paths many times over the years, but I don't think we've ever really been formally introduced. But I used to shoot food for you guys way back in the day. I think I was introduced by Spencer Tunick, who's a close oh, friend of mine. Awesome. I'm sure you know. And so yeah. Spencer had introduced me to some of the editors and Pam, who was the photo editor at the time, would give me assignments and she would say, oh, we're going to shoot this restaurant. She would give me their number and I would call the restaurants directly and just say, oh, I'm shooting for paper. And then I would go in and take some pictures and they would always make a really huge spread of food because they wanted it to look nice. <laughs> it was a black and white photo. So it was like, it wasn't, it wasn't that intricate. So I'd take a couple pictures and then I would have this incredible meal because I would get to eat all this food that they made. So at the time I was working at Jerry's on Prince Street. I'm oh, sure you yeah. remember. Sure. Um, and I got kind of unceremoniously fired and I was a little bit bitter. And at the time, Jerry owned another restaurant on 2nd Avenue. And so I got this great idea that I was going to go and pull this scam and tell him that <laughs> I was shooting a oh, food no. feature. So I called him in person myself, made up the story. I'm shooting for Paper Magazine. They made this huge spread for me. I took a couple of photos with no film in the camera and then had this huge, amazing meal. Everything worked out perfect. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I'm going uh, out to dinner. With, I just started dating this girl and I went out to dinner with her and her mother and for some reason, I thought that would be a funny, appropriate anecdote to drop. And they did not think it was funny. They thought I was like <laughs> this like conniving scam artist that was going to get put in jail for misdemeanor entree fraud. And uh, that was basically the beginning of the end of that relationship. But so I'll always oh, like yeah. associate that with, with Paper Magazine. So that's my little, that's my anecdote. And with Jerry, did he ever catch up to you, Jerry, after that? No, not at all. No. So <laughs> good riddance. <laughs> It was Jerry's was great. Our Jerry's was opened about the same time we were moving into our first office on Spring and Broadway, which is where the Nike uh, building is now. Yep. We were on the second floor there. And we'd go. And that was about the only place really in the neighborhood that you could eat besides Finelli's or something. So I remember, you know, just being going in there almost every day. Yeah, it was a great. There was a lot of lot of really interesting people that 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 used to work there that kind of went on to really interesting things. And I think for a while that that little stretch of Prince Street, I, I was one of, I think it was one of the coolest areas in all of New York City for for a moment in time. You know, you had like definitely Stussy was right across the street, and it was just it was a great 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 summer. I remember working there. So. Well, David, it's been a pleasure getting to finally sit down and chat with you. I'm a big fan of Light Culture Podcast. Check it out. It's available on all platforms. Um, I really appreciate what you're doing on the podcast. I'm definitely a, a big fan. Appreciate all you've done for the culture of New York City, man. You've been a big part Thank of it. Thank you. Love the plug and keep it up, man. Sounds good. I'll see you around. Hopefully I'll see you in person soon. You bet. Take care. Bye. Thanks for listening. And a huge thanks to today's guest for dropping in. If you enjoyed this episode, do us a favor and take a minute to rate, review, follow, or subscribe. 
This episode of The Plug was executive produced by Ryan Bucci and Peter Buckingham. Theme music by Andrew Van Weingarten and Dan Drohan with sound design by Brad Worrell at Soundwag. Thanks again, and be sure to tune in for future conversations.